Well, hello, John. Hello, Todd. It's another edition of Flight Safety Detectives. It's good to see you guys. Uh, I know that uh, I was giving John grief, uh, Todd, because uh, you and him ended up doing a show and uh, I was not present, which, uh, you know, I figured he was going to try and slip one in because that way he can get these zingers in and not have any retaliation. But you know what? Paybacks are hell. So it's, uh, it's good to see you both. As always, uh, I am in Colorado only temporarily. I'm heading out on, on another trip. And I know that, what, John, you're way south. You're down in, what, South Carolina, Florida, wherever, who knows, Tahiti. Where are you? <laughs> now, South Carolina, going to Newark tomorrow, and then uh, back to South Carolina. Yeah, well, that's that's good. I mean, Newark is a good place for you. Maybe you can help them, uh, you know, bail out all the water that's probably still in the baggage area of uh, Newark Airport. Yeah, it's a swamp. In more ways than one. And where are you, Todd? Where are you hiding? Well, on the outskirts of Boston, as usual. Not going anywhere this week. Oh, well, come on. (laughs) You know, the weather's changing. It's getting nice. And unfortunately, the airports are a zoo. So maybe uh, maybe you do have a good plan to just stay in there. I have a local trip plan to get a lobster roll or two. That's about it. Well, good. Well, Well, we... um, Sounds good. (laughs) <laughs> tastes even better yeah i'll bet absolutely well we know that uh there's been a a number of accidents this week one uh was a prominent accident flown by uh, cape air cessna 402 that uh ended up into the trees trying to make a uh, a landing at provincetown municipal airport and uh that's right in John and and you, of course, Todd, that's right near your backyard. So, uh, and well, I think we're all familiar with Cape Air. Um, they're operating both the 402 C's and uh, they're, they've just started to integrate in the new aircraft, the Technum aircraft uh, that are just a little bigger than those 402s, but they're a, a new generation of airplane. They too are piston aircraft. And, um, and unfortunately, this one was an older airplane, but it doesn't look like it was really the airplane at this point. So uh, what do we know, gentlemen? Well, Greg, before we get into that, let's remind everybody who's sponsoring this show. You know, so this show is being brought to everybody by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, uh, PAMA.org, if you want to get a hold of them. And it's also being brought to you by Avemco Insurance, the premium general aviation insurance carrier. So if you own a general aviation airplane and you're renewing or if you just bought one and you need insurance, please give Avemco a call for a quote that you might be pleasantly surprised. Or if you're a CFI and you need insurance, or if you're a renter and need insurance, yeah, give Avemco a call. In fact, Avemco's services the entire spectrum of general aviation aircraft in the insurance marketplace. So give them a call. It's 888-879-0389. Again, 888-879-0389 or avemco.com. And don't forget, if you just mentioned flight safety detectors, you get a 5% discount on top of any other discounts you get. 
So give them a try. And uh, and now back to what we know about the accident. <laughs> oh, my God. One of these days, we're going to professionally produce this show and, <laughs> and not sound like a bunch of rookies sitting around talking. It's this is just too funny sometimes. I'm glad it's Sunday, or at least that's when we're recording this show. So it, uh, I always need some entertainment from the both of you. So it's a good way to start. Start the week. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so we know the airplane was was being operated by Cape Air. It was flight number uh, two hundred seven two, flying from Boston to Provincetown. It was uh, delayed coming out of Boston some two hours and 44 minutes. We don't know why at this point in time. There was plenty of bad weather around Provincetown. So uh, it may have been a weather delay, but in any event, it was delayed 244. It finally took off at three, uh, I'm looking at my notes here, uh, three, four minutes after three, it took off and uh, was heading sort of southeast out of Boston, heading to runway seven in Provincetown. And uh, Todd, you've picked up some additional facts from that. Why don't you share them with us? Yes, uh, one of the things about this is that it's unclear from the information we have whether or not this was diverted from Nantucket or whether the intended uh, landing area was uh, Provincetown. But in any case, uh, it was going into the airport in Provincetown, which happens to be an untowered airport about 3,500 feet long. There were weather reports both before and after the accident time that indicated that there was rain in the area. The report that was a, a timestamp about five minutes after the incident said that it was heavy rain. It's unclear whether there was rain happening at the time of the event. The one person who has spoken at length about what was happening during the landing was one of the passengers who was injured, who was uh, said words to the effect of, they landed. It didn't look like they were going to be able to stop. And then the pilot pulled up. It wasn't clear whether it was pulling up just rotating or pulling up and left the ground. But the FAA did report that the airplane went through the airport fence and through some trees before coming to rest. Looking at photos on the ground of the day of the event and also some historical photos from Google Earth, uh, there's about three to 400 feet of open area between the end of the runway and the initial tree line to the, uh, just to the right of center line where apparently this airplane hit. Whether this airplane was airborne when it struck the fence and the trees or whether it was on the ground when it struck the fence and trees, that remains to be seen. The NTSB has, as of yet, not given any formal report as to what went on. One of the things that we got to, let's, let's take this apart a little bit. <clears throat> Of course, uh, you know, everybody loves to turn the flight aware and flight radar 24 and every other internet program to try and put the profiles together. And we've done the same thing um, while we're waiting to get uh, better fidelity data. But when you look at the flight path from flight radar 24 versus the flight path of flight aware, um, it would give you two different storylines. The flight aware data shows that the airplane had made an inbound turn directly to the airport versus the flight radar 24 data that shows a bit of a jog in that data. So it's not a straight line to the airport. 
Um, if he was shooting the ILS to runway seven, of course, you would have joined the approach and been straight in. Now, you were talking, Todd, that there was weather that was reported uh, five minutes before, five minutes after. There was indications of heavy rain. What the board's really going to have to do is dissect the weather on the approach. Even though it may not have been raining very hard at the airport, he, the pilot may have encountered heavy rain during the course of executing the ILS approach. Um, we do know that the, uh, there was rain at the airport. We know that um, the, <laughs> this particular runway, like you said, was 3,500 feet long, but it's asphalt, so it's not grooved. That, John, sets us up for a hydroplaning event. And from my sources, um, I heard that the airplane uh, likely landed long and started the hydroplane which may have necessitated the decision by the pilot to one, either try and stop and go off the end, or two, try to bail out of this and, and power up and pull up. And it sounds like the latter occurred based on um, one of the passenger statements and some of the physical evidence that would suggest that the, uh, the pilot did power up, was trying to go around and uh, may have gotten the airplane airborne, but it wasn't of sufficient height to clear the fence or the trees five, 600 feet off the end of the runway. I'd like to throw in a couple more things about this uh, for those out there. This was an airline flight, but it was a single pilot operation. This was an aircraft that had fewer than 10 seat capacity for, for passengers. So there are a different set of rules that are allowed for aircraft like this. And it's unclear to me because I haven't looked at the specifics of this. There may not have been a cockpit voice recorder or a flight data recorder on this aircraft. There wasn't. In which case, something as imprecise as flight radar or EDSD beta from, data from flight radar 24 or wherever may be some of the best information that even the NTSB has. I'm speculating here. The NTSB has not given any briefings on this event. It's unclear oh. if there are any recorded uh, communications between the pilot and air traffic control. There may be, but I'm not aware of any. One of the things, Todd, John and I have talked on a previous show about this, is that people like to use Flight Radar 24 and Flight Aware and things like that. Um, and while, yes, it is some, uh, a lot of it is based on ADSB data, there is always issues with um, the receiver for that data and the smoothing of the programs and things like that. Um, again, we've <laughs> I'm working an accident right now where I know that the airplane crashed on the approach to a runway. But if you look at flight aware, it shows that not only did the airplane make it to the, to the airport, but in fact was flying past the airport when none of that happened. So we have to take this early information with a grain of salt. We don't want to build a storyline around it because of these disparities. There was weather in the area. So if you look at the flight radar 24 data, you could build a storyline with the little jog that's on the, uh, on the approach path before the airport, as depicted in that data, that maybe the pilot was deviating. These are the kinds of things that the, the, the NTSB is going to have to ferret out, either through interview or better fidelity data when they get it from the FAA direct. I can speak so, directly to the fidelity of some of that data. I happen to have a, essentially a do-it-yourself Raspberry Pi-based system right here on my windowsill that feeds data to both Flight Radar 24 and FlightAware. So yes, anyone 
with the basics of putting together electronic parts can put together one of these and feed data to the system. I'm not vetted by the FAA. There's no third party coming in to see whether or not my signals are precise. I'm some one of the many tens of thousands of volunteers around the world who put their uh, money toward uh, you know, Raspberry Pis or whatever and put together one of these uh, receivers. And that's how good the data is. Mm -hmm. Well, the NTSB is certainly going to be challenged with this one uh, to, to get accurate information. Fortunately, everybody survived. So uh, if the pilot wasn't too traumatized, he will probably be able to give us a lot of good data. But if he did land long, uh, runway condition uh, probably played a big part in this. And one of the things that I thought about uh, uh, since this happened is these KPA pilots fly these same routes over and over and over multiple times every single day. They know the airports, they know the condition of the runways, uh, they're very knowledgeable. And it could be that he chose to land long because he knows that there's standing water on the beginning of the runway. Uh, you know, with no control tower, heavy rain on a general aviation uh, airport probably means that there's no general aviation airplanes flying at that point in time. So there's no runway condition reports being broadcast out by other pilots. So he's sort of landing blind and maybe that's why he held it off to see what the condition of the runway was and, and touched down and found out it was, uh, he was hydroplating and he needed to go around. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, again, we can build all sorts of storylines and, and <laughs> come up with uh, reasons why um, the board, of course, is going to really have to dissect the performance. And like you said, John, while these pilots you know, are very familiar with these airports and they can uh, and they do it all the time as far as repetition, maybe we have an issue of overconfidence. Uh, we have a little bit of an issue of complacency, which, you know, sounds counterintuitive because they've done it so many times. And they have that high level of confidence. They've been there. They've done that. This is nothing new. Um, maybe, you know, the A game wasn't there for this particular pilot. Again, these are the kinds of things that the safety board and the investigators are going to have to ferret out. It may be that because of the pilot's uh, injuries, he may not remember those things. And as uh, Todd was talking about, yes, this airplane, it's an old piston banger airplane. It does not have a flight data recorder. It does not have a cockpit voice recorder. So the facts, conditions, and circumstances are going to have to be reconstructed based on data that is available, ADSB data. Of course, witnesses exterior to the airplane, if there were any witnesses, any electronic witnesses, that is any kind of security video at the airport that may have captured the landing. And then of course, very comprehensive interviews with the passengers to see what is fact and fiction. The three of us have dealt with uh, witness interviews in our respective careers. We know that, yes, you're going to get multiple stories, but you also have to have fact and you also have to have physical evidence most of the time to be able to ferret out fact from fiction that you may get from a witness. And, uh, and so this is going to be a lengthy process, and we expect that the safety board is going to put out at least a prelim report, hopefully um, very soon. 
and maybe bring to light some facts that uh, we don't have immediately available to us. But from what I understand and from folks that I know, uh, they're indicating that uh, the airplane likely landed long hydroplane and the pilot chose to try and abandon the approach by doing a, uh, a go around. And unfortunately, because of that short runway, may not have gotten the airplane. Uh, I mean, it was airborne. It's obvious when you look at some of the video that was taken by, I guess, a biker or somebody on a bike path. Um, John, you and I have looked at that video. And I think, Todd, you've, you've seen that video as well. In the area of the bike path, which is right before crossing a road and where the, the airplane came to final rest, those are small branches. Those are not trees. Those are not trees knocked down, which would suggest that that airplane was airborne and was striking the top of the trees as it settled into the trees and came to rest. So uh, now the question is, how high did the pilot get the airplane? And, um, and was it but for the fact that uh, he may have tried to abandon that approach late? Um, he wasn't able to, uh, to get enough altitude to clear the obstructions off the end of the runway. And I'd like to point out something about the trees that are in this area. This airport is at the tip of, of uh, Cape Cod. And if you look at a map of Massachusetts, you see this little hook of land going out into the ocean. The airport is right on the tip of that land. So these are not big huge oaks or anything like that. These are fairly uh, short, uh, and, and John, you described it best, uh, um, some sort of scrub tree. Right, scrub pine. They're all, yeah. all over Cape Cod. It's because of the sandy soil. Uh, they don't grow very big. Yeah. And, and the aircraft, which was broken up somewhat, the fuselage was largely intact. Uh, both wings exhibited damage and both exhibited uh, uh, fire damage. But uh, typically when you see something go through trees like that, you would think there would be no more significant damage. But again, these are fairly small diameter limbs on these trees. So that might have been to their advantage. And, that's in, in, uh, again, if he had not gotten the airplane airborne and center punched the airport boundary fence and gone into the trees, the, the wreckage wouldn't look like that. One, it probably wouldn't have made it that far, even if these are scrub trees, because they still have some diameter. They're two, three, four inches in diameter. So that would have torn up the airplane a lot more than it was, but it probably would have acted as a barrier from it going as far as it did off the end of the runway. So it, it is apparent, at least from the available evidence, that the airplane did get airborne. I think the, the big question is decision-making. We have these aircraft that are flying these routes all the time, um, and, and now you have a pilot. What went into the decision-making to attempt that landing? I mean, it's obvious you can execute the approach, which it's apparent that he did. Um, it would have probably been the ILS to runway seven. Um, it was successful because he made it to the airport. But at what point now does a pilot, especially this pilot, make the decision that, yeah, I'm still good to go and things are stabilized and I'm going to make the landing versus this isn't a good situation. Maybe I should just abandon it at the missed approach or abandon it if he sees the runway pop into view and all of a sudden he's got standing water on it, you know that that's going to be trouble. Again, this isn't like he's landed there the first time. I'm sure that he's landed there multiple times. 
And all of these pilots are aware of the unique characteristics of, of each of these runways. So all of these are the kinds of questions that as an investigator, I sure would be asking not only that pilot, but the company. What is the standing procedure? What is the standing policy with regard to evaluating? And of course, we see that there was weather in the area. And, um, and while, yes, you're not going to, uh, to abandon flying to your destination and go to an alternate if the weather isn't reported um, you know, below minimums and things like that. Again, where, where are these thresholds? And I think the board's going to have to answer those kinds of questions. We have both seen, and John, I know that you know, over the years, uh, especially up in, in that particular area, we've lost, I mean, Cape Air has lost a couple of airplanes uh, doing the same thing, going into weather. Um, there was a down east, um, I can't remember if that was a twin otter that crashed uh, years ago. But, you know, when you're, are you pushing the envelope? Are we trying to accomplish the mission rather than being prudent? And I think that, again, when you look at the sequence of events, that two and a half hours sitting on the ground before they left, that's going to, I think, going to be a, a factor because most likely it was a weather delay of some sort. That's what it appears. That's what it appears. Now, what, one thing about, um, well, sorry for interrupting. Go ahead, John. I, I was going to say one thing that, that you didn't mention, Greg, is there, the NTSB is definitely going to be looking to see if these engines were making power. What kind of signs you know, physical damage that those engines incur going through the trees or when they struck the ground. And they'll probably want to pull them off uh, unless the pilot has some clear recollection, they'll probably want to pull those engines off and make sure that they were, were running fine. Yeah, and, and again, I, it's going to be, it, it's really going to, uh... <laughs> It's really going to, to be something that the passengers are going to have to uh, delineate and provide factual information. Because we don't have any kind of electronic recording device, um, again, some passengers may say, well, I heard the engine sputter. We all know that airplane engines don't sputter proverbially like that, but, um, or they weren't making power, or it felt like this, or it felt like that. It's going to take a lot of uh, dissection and physical evidence to really corroborate statements that are made um, so that we do know the true performance of the aircraft. And then, of course, aircraft performance is going to be an issue. Landing performance. Was that airplane capable of landing on a contaminated runway with sufficient safety margins and things like that? But no matter, <laughs> no matter what airplane or what airport if that airplane or an airplane lands long, you have now cut that safety margin um, exponentially, depending on where you've touched down. And on a short runway, you do not have a lot of margin. And on a short contaminated runway, you definitely don't have any safety margins. You have got to be on top of the, the ball when it comes to where you put that airplane down and how you're going to control it. And then you got to really have plan B in place. That is, how long am I going to let this go and still have a safety margin to abandon the approach? One thing and that strikes me about this event, this, this investigation, is pretty much what Greg just said. All the things he said, this isn't just an airline issue. 
anyone who is in the general aviation community who's flying at any airport, how often have you flown into an airport, an airstrip that's 3,500 feet or so, and that's 100 feet wide or so, doesn't have a tower on it, and where you might have a fairly high performance twin, and you might have a, you know, a get their itis sort of situation. Human behavior and human performance would have similar issues, whether you're general aviation or an airline. So my advice, when this report comes out and you're flying anything, I don't care what it is from Cessna on up, read this closely. This is an airline event, but I think it's totally relevant to the GA community. And, and, and that's a perfect point, Todd, because when you look at accidents like this, this is a, a you know, a GA airplane for all intent and purposes you being used in, in commercial service. The I think sometimes, and I've seen it with a number of accidents, is pilots going into their home airport or a very familiar airport think they can't because they already have a familiarity with that particular airport. And GA pilots going into their home airport, dark and stormy night, I know the runway's right there, I know the conditions, I know how long it is and things like that that tends to factor into their decision-making on a dark and stormy night, whether or not they continue going into that particular airport. I did three accidents. I did a Cessna 206 where the pilot made basically had a makeshift approach that he created himself using waypoints with a GPS. When he got to a, his last waypoint, then he picked up a heading and he flew for two miles. And as long as he stayed on that heading, and he was at 500 feet above the ground, he would end up flying to his little airstrip on his property. Unfortunately, he kind of uh, started hunting a little bit for that runway. He had some lights out there. He didn't have formal runway lights, but he had some lights out there. And because he knew the area so well, and I'm getting this from people that I talked to, including his wife, because he knew the airplane and or the uh, airport and the surrounding area so well, he pushed on. Unfortunately, that 500 feet went down to 300 feet, went down to 200 feet as he thought he was getting closer. And the next thing he hit a power line and that's all it took. If he had been anywhere else, there's a high probability he wouldn't have done this, but because he was that close to being home, it was his backyard, his familiarity with the area, he thought he could. And these, like John was saying, these guys are flying repetitively into these airports. Is that some, you know, basis for decision-making that I know it, been there, done that, and I'm going to accomplish the mission? You know, we talked about standing water on the runway and him landing and maybe landing long because of it, but also standing water on the, on the takeoff end of that runway in the direction that he was going could also have slowed him down because when you're plowing water, you shed an awful lot of airspeed. So if he was trying to make a go around, his main gear is still on the ground and there's standing water. You hit it, you know, if it's an inch deep and you hit it, you're going to feel it. You're going to lose some uh, velocity. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just so much to this accident uh, to be learned and it's going to be, very difficult to ferret it all out. So I, I think that the board, hopefully, you know, they, they, they will have enough good information. Now it's the interpretation. But again, this, this, this accident 
sequence started before that airplane ever left the ground. And you have to expand it beyond just the wreckage, those passengers and that pilot in the air, on the airplane. You have got to look at company policies and procedures. You have got to look at the dispatch and see how and why that airplane was delayed. What, what changed the decision two and a half hours later to dispatch that airplane? All of these factor into the entire sequence of events. Uh, this isn't, well, the pilot you know, landed long and screwed up. It goes well beyond that. And there are always lessons to be learned, either by the company to incorporate into a new policy, procedure, or whatever. But like Todd was talking about, it also has a benefit to the general aviation community. Why? Because we can all learn from it. It's a 3,500 foot runway. You're not landing a 737 in there. You're landing airplanes like we fly in the general aviation community, high powered or high, uh, high performance singles and uh, twins and even light jets. So, I mean, these are the critical things that we can learn from if the board does its job and does a very thorough and methodical investigation with good, solid evidence. You know, I, I also am curious to see what kind of a role dispatch played in this, because KPA does have a ditch, dispatch system. And uh, what was their role? You know, I, I always hop on the pilots at the end of every show about uh, pre-planning, doing a good pre-planning your flight. But when you have a dispatch operation, a lot of that's done for the pilot. And, you know, with this delay, did he take a look at the weather himself? Was he monitoring what's what's going on on, on his route of travel and, and at Provincetown? Yeah. Uh, was he relying upon the dispatch people to get him the information? And, and in fact, did they get him accurate information? So and, and their John, role this is going to be uh, important as well. And I'd like to point out that... Um, Pilots clearly are certified by the FAA. They have a license. What requirements does the company or the individual have to have to be a dispatcher at an airline? There's a dispatch license. Yeah, there's. A they all, you don't. Not everybody that works in dispatch has to have a, have that license. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that do a lot of the mundane work uh, in that uh, type of operation. So you have one of one or two dis licensed dispatchers. And one, two, three other people processing all the paperwork, getting the data together for uh, the dispatcher, and especially an operation like uh, Cape Air, where you you're in a very compact area. All right, so you most of your operation is between Providence, Hyannis, uh, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, and Boston, with an occasional run up into Worcester, which is only still only a 15 minute, 20 minute flight. Uh, from Hyannis. Hyannis is their main base. So you have a lot of airplanes going into the same places over and over again. And so a lot of what the dispatcher does is routine. So you have people pulling the weather down for the dispatcher, you know, uh, helpers, if you will, want to be dispatchers at some point in the future. So you have a lot of that going on. They need to take a look at that. You know, you know, and there's a little operation with this. I was just going to say, Greg, uh, you've got a lot of experience with the dispatches with the Little Rock accident. Yeah, it's a major operation, a major airline with dispatch, and the dispatchers hung this guy out to dry yeah. in Little Rock. Yeah, and and of course, that's definitely going to be one of those things. 
because we know the mission is to get people from point A to point B. And, you know, there are these things that we, we look at in all these commercial type accidents. Was there pressure to go? We saw it in Kobe Bryant. We saw it in a number of other accidents where even though it may not be spoken pressure, there is self-induced pressure by a pilot to accomplish the mission. And again, workload. Here you got a single pilot operation. Todd was talking about this earlier. Um, you have a single pilot operation on a great day, sunny, you know, blue sky, 102 mile visibility, you know, workload isn't that great. But now you're flying into weather. You've got to set the airplane up and yourself up to uh, to fly the approach. So you got to think about making sure that the you know you're going to be able to execute the approach, go down the minimums. But you're also thinking about Plan B. Now, typically pilots don't factor in that they're going to touch down on a runway and then abandon the landing. Normally, it's you're going to abandon the approach um, at a prescribed point. But in this particular instance, it's obvious that the pilot had the approach wired. He got to the airport. Now, what happened with the landing? If he did land long, why did he land long? And what, was, what were the influencing factors to make him believe that he could abandon that landing and get the airplane out of there safely versus staying on the ground to just going off the end? These are the kinds of things that we're going to have to try and learn from. And hopefully the FAA and the NTSB will be able to get us some good information um, because this could have a future impact, not only on the company and their policies and procedures, but it, again, it's something that as a flight instructor will want to talk about and will want to train other pilots. Here's a situation. This is what happened. This is the decision-making. Here are the factors that that pilot uh, used to make that decision. It wasn't appropriate. It wasn't uh, the, the proper decision, or he should have used more information. All of these can be used as tools, not only for us, but for the individual pilot out there when they do an introspection of, okay, this is my planning, as you always preach, John, in my planning stage. I am going to have to worry about the weather. I am going to be executing the approach and the what if. If I have to abandon, what am I going to do? And what are my prescribed points that I'm creating for myself? We don't do that enough. And as flight instructors, I've seen that we haven't really taught students to think like that. Um, we talk about taking off or even landing. And we think about, okay, if you're landing, Okay, where is that point on the runway that you're going to pick to abandon and say, I'm going to stay on the ground versus try and fly this airplane? Same with the takeoff. If the airplane starts the takeoff roll and you aren't off the ground by a certain place on the airport, then you just shut it all down and stay on the ground. We don't emphasize that enough. And as we've all talked about in multiple shows, and you know every uh, every uh, aviation publication writes about these things on a regular basis, and that is planning the entire flight with all the alternatives, because the flight isn't just point A to point B. There are so many other external factors that are going to have an influence on your planning, and you have to have that in the back of your head as you take off and as you land. This is a potential learning opportunity for GA, for airline aviation, whomever can, can learn from this. And typically, 
what you have when you have a report like this, you have the actual report, which could be varying lengths. It could be a major report, a couple of hundred pages. It could be something that's rather brief. But I believe in this case, as with many of the NTSB investigations, you'll have not only the report, you'll have the public docket. And the public docket might have much more details about certain aspects of the event. So my recommendation, if this is an event that's of interest to you, when this does come out, don't just get the report, look for anything in the public docket. Also, to a certain extent, the modern era of communication with social media and such, there's stuff out there beyond the NTSB that could be informative. And one of those things was the 30 second or so video I sent there to you. It was shot by an eyewitness. Now, it may not be very important in the investigation, but it may turn out to be that is the best evidence that's out there for certain aspects of the event. So broaden your horizon. Learn from watching shows like this, which you should watch on a regular basis, by the way. Learn from formal reports. Learn even from non-traditional sources of information. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing is, is that, again, we're pilots. We are trained to be pilots. There are certain expectations, not only by the FAA, but family, friends, and anybody else that gets in an airplane with you. And you owe it to yourself and to them and even to the people on the ground near an airport or (laughs) the ground that you're overflying. You owe it to all of them to be the complete pilot, not the 70% pilot, not the 60% pilot, not even the 90% pilot, the 100% pilot. That means understanding, doing the pre-planning that John preaches every single show and doing it thoroughly. That is, have your plan A, have a plan B, and in some cases, you may even need a plan C. It's there. And as long as you have it there and you get into that habit of planning like that, nothing will be a surprise. Um, It it could be an inconvenience. It's going to be something that you can deal with, um, but you're going to deal with it with a high level of confidence and not try to learn it, pardon the pun, on the fly while it's happening. Yeah. Pre-planning is a big part of it whether you're an airline or not. You know, and as, as you were talking about the pre-planning piece and how things change, you know, uh, we've been hopping on the, doing a good pre-flight of the airplane as well as the rest. And that email that we've got from an airline pilot that after listening to us, and we've talked about it on one of the shows in, in much more detail than what I normally just say at the end, that... Uh, he wrote in and told us that he has changed the way he does his pre-flight based upon some of the pointers that we've made in our shows. And that's what everyone needs to do. You know, I don't like picking up broken airplanes and broken people. I don't like it. And, and I get out actually angry when I, it involves kids. Right? Why don't we go? Why, why do we pilots? We know what we have to do. We've got a ton of education on flying. And yet we make some of the dumbest mistakes out there, even dumber than car accidents. Yeah, it's, well, the, it's just a, it's just a tragedy. Just well, I've seen some ambivalence, you know. Again, and that's why I, I go back to if you have the opportunity, go on the FAA website, pull down Advisory Circular sixty twenty two. It's all about aeronautical decision making. It's thirty two pages long. 
but the FAA has done a great job in characterizing attitudes and, and, and basically characteristics of pilots who make good decisions and bad decisions. That not only applies to pilots, it applies to mechanics. I use it even in my regular everyday life because there's some very good information. The fact is, is that when we look at this kind of thing, this, this pilot is a professional pilot. So we're not gonna already point the finger at him. There were a lot of reasons for what he was trying to do and a lot of reasons for what he wasn't able to do. We have to wait for the investigation process to play out. But when you look at what decisions he was making and the information he was using, that's going to help benefit us. We're very blessed that nobody was killed in this accident. That's the first and foremost thing. But we have to learn from this. You can't just write this, oh, it's just another accident, you know, and you park it in the back of your mind or you blow it off. And, you know, that can't happen to me attitude because I wouldn't do that. I don't fly those airplanes or whatever. It doesn't matter because what you were going to learn out of this accident applies to anything that flies. Why? Because it involves a human and it involves decision-making and whether or not there was appropriate information to make an informed decision or an uninformed decision or an uh, a, uh, improper decision based on a lack of information. Well, I think we've beaten this to death uh, on, on what we know so far. We will be back on this, this accident again, just because it looks like there's gonna be a wealth of, of material there to help the general aviation community. So stay tuned folks, we will be back. Well, my friends, it's, uh, again, always good to see you. And uh, I know, John, that uh, I always leave you with the last word. So I'm going to start with Todd and his last words before I turn it over to you. Well, the one thing that comes to mind here is this is something that, frankly, it was of interest to me because it happened to be a local story. But as soon as I started scratching the surface, I thought, this isn't just a local thing about a local airline, a small airplane with a non-fatal accident. This has stuff in it that is of use to three of us here, and more importantly, to the community at large, especially the general aviation community, even though this isn't a, uh, an airline accident. So that's my big takeaway now from, from all this. And, and John, you know, I've already said my two cents worth, but uh, again, this is, these are the kinds of accidents that we can learn from and we have to learn from. And, and I just think that, and, and I'm working right now on a, a project where I really wanna try and understand better what pilots and their decision-making is all about when it comes to recurrent training. We know that recurrent training, of course, is required in certain aspects of, of aviation, but for the general aviation pilot, again, We've seen this disregard or this, you know, I don't need to do recurrent training. I fly on a regular basis. I only fly a 172. It doesn't require um, any kind of real complex formal recurrent training. That's not what it's all about. What it's all about is learning these lessons, these valuable lessons from these incidents and accidents, and then bringing them into your own little world to enhance your skills, to enhance your decision-making, 
Why? Because it's going to trigger something. Yeah, that guy didn't make that decision. I didn't even think about that. I should have, I should use that from now on. I should look a little further in the information. I should follow it a little closer. I should use my tools available, such as my iPad with any of the, uh, of the uh, flight planning tools. Um, I really should monitor the weather on a more realistic or timely basis. All of these things, we can make ourselves better as pilots. And if you shut down and think that I only drive a 172 around the patch every once in a while, I don't need that. You're the guy or gal who really needs it. Why? Because you think you already know it and you don't. And the three of us have been around a long time. We've been involved in aviation. I am learning something new every single day, whether it's through my own flying or because of the work I do where I have to learn something new because it's outside my wheelhouse and I'm having to dissect it for the purposes of accident investigation and in some cases litigation. So I find it very interesting, very entertaining for me because I go way outside um, my comfort zone to learn something. And, and a lot of it is just, I mean, it's like, man, I wish I had known this 10 years ago. So I think that this is a perfect opportunity. So with that, my friend, I will leave you, John, with the last words of the Flight Safety Detective podcast. Well, the first word is the words that you just used for the pilots also pertain to mechanics. And I can't tell you how many times I've come across mechanics and talk about re, uh, recurrent training and said, I've been working on, on Cessna's 172s, 182s, type airplanes for 40 years. Nothing's changed. I don't need recurrent training. And it's, I get the same thoughts. You know, you are the guy that needs it. Uh, and failure to follow procedures in the cockpit, failure to follow procedures in the hangar, are still the number one problem in the industry. And if we're also damn smart, why aren't we following the procedures? Yeah. Most of the time, those procedures are, have been written in blood or in the case of a hanger, they may be blood or they may just be a major uh, costly mistake, but it's just all over. And it seems to be coming back with a vengeance after COVID. Now, I don't know whether that's just because I'm looking harder after COVID or if it really is a spike in the wrong direction that's above what was the norm in 18 or 19. I don't know yet. This time will tell. But I just noticed that there's a loss, an awful lot of bad things happening for no apparent reason. So with that, I will remind everybody that this show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Organization, as well as Avemco Insurance. If you need insurance, howl insurance, insurance for any general aviation airplane, if you need it because you're a flight instructor and you should have insurance if you're a renter, because if you have a problem and in, in, uh, there's a deficiency in the insurance coverage, or maybe there isn't any insurance coverage, you're gonna be liable for it. So it pays to get it. I, I've been told it's very inexpensive, but I don't know if that's true or not. But in any event, Avemco is the place to go for all your GA insurance needs. And you get a 5% discount for mentioning flight safety detectives. Now, give them a call. It's 888-879-0389 or avemco.com. 
And with that, I will remind everybody, if you're going to fly, do a good pre-planning session, cover all the what ifs. When you get out to the airplane, do a thorough walk around, touch your airplane. Don't just walk around and look at it, touch your airplane. And when you go flying, please fly safely.